A rookie cop is charged with guarding a defunct police station on its last night. She starts to hear voices and feels a presence. And soon she learns about the psychotic cult members who committed suicide in the station years earlier. Is Officer Jessica Lauren losing her mind or is she being stalked and driven mad by the ghosts of murderers? Find out as we try to unravel the mystery of 2014's last shift. I'm Connor Izagari. What? Huh? I'm Josh Allred. <laughs> and this is Film Gasm. <laughs> Happy Wednesday, and welcome to the Filmgasm podcast. If you've been listening to the past few episodes, you'll know about our new film picking cycle with all four of us getting one pick per cycle and the fifth uh, being left to the book. Today's episode was chosen from the elusive book of Filmgasm, and admittedly, it's something I never in a million years would have chosen to talk about on this show. Uh, I saw this film for the first time about three years ago, and I was not a fan. And while a second viewing didn't really change my mind, I am interested to see if the discussion knocks something loose. So uh, thanks for being here today, Josh, to help me out with this one. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm glad I could be woken up for this. <laughs> uh, before we get into it, I do have one update on the rewind. Uh, we talked a little bit about this, uh, Caleb and I, on the sneak preview uh, this past week. Today's update brings us back to our Salem's Lot episode from June 2020, episode 47. Stephen King alumni William Sadler has joined the cast of the upcoming Salem's Lot remake from Gary Doberman and James Wan. The film is holding a September 2022 release date. And I, I love that. I, William Sadler is such an underappreciated gem. His work with King's films has been just stellar. And I really hope he's the one playing either Barlow or Straker. I... I really would like to see him as Barlow. I think, I think that's something he could, he could really make his own. However, I think him being kind of like a, a, a sinister henchman type, I, I think that's also right in his wheelhouse. He, he has that face where he can be menacing, but he can also be really endearing. So like he's, he's one of my favorite like character actors of like, I mean, I don't know hard to it, it, it's hard to like rank him but he's definitely in there and i i actually saw the tweet when he did it and i was like oh shit okay yeah let's yeah let's do that put this guy in your fucking movie let's go yeah absolutely and you no know, it's funny you mentioned that he's got this kind of sinister but endearing kind of you know back and forth he can do and i think that's why he works so well as uh as death in the bill and ted movies because he was play, he had both those qualities going at the same time, and I, I love him in you know Shawshank and The Mist. He's he's good when it comes to King. So and the fact they're keeping his character's role kind of a secret makes me think he he might be playing Barlow. Yeah, yeah. Um, very hopeful. Very hopeful. Um, I uh, I heard you guys talking about it um, on the the sneak preview, and I was really. Um, I was talking to myself in the car, you know, just joining along with you two guys, Jabber John. And uh, yeah, I really like that, uh, that Caleb is starting to uh, anticipate when I, when I might throw uh, text messages at him for things. I'm already, oh, I'm already in his head. I'm already in his head. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I, I love seeing the thought process 
is he'll be like, you know, I'm about to say something. And I know Josh is going to have something to say about that. And I'll be like, well, he wasn't until you brought that up. <laughs> Probably exactly. like you're your own you're, worst enemy, buddy. You're opening that door for me. That's fine. Okay. I'll do it. I'll walk right in there. Yeah. Sometimes gonna... just let me kick the door down. Just let me kick the door down. Yeah. If you're going to paint the target on your head, you can't be upset when someone shoots it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, Salem's lots coming. Obviously there's probably going to be a lot more updates from here on in regarding casting and release dates and trailers and whatever happens with this movie in the near future. Uh, so prior to this podcast, had you seen last shift or even known about it? I knew about it and it was one of those where if I would have seen this on the shelf at a video store, I would have picked it up and looked at it and be like, Hmm. Okay, because the uh, the poster image I saw was the guy with the pentagram carved into his face, and I was like, "Oh shit, hell yeah! You you had me sold at Satan. Like let's let's <laughs> let's watch this." And I think the first time I watched it, it was I think it was 2017, and even with a little bit of liquid courage going through me and just saying like, "Let's just see what happens," I fell asleep. So. That probably says all you need to know. Um, that there's just a lot that I feel is not right with this movie. The pacing being one of them, it's extremely slow. And even when it does try to pick up the pace, it's it it doesn't it doesn't help. And that's that's one of its many problems. And I'm sure we'll try and start from the top so to speak or we'll just wherever wherever we land on it um the the other thing that i'll that i'll throw out right from the top so malignant is the big movie that everybody's been talking about over the weekend rightly so i liked it uh it's not perfect i don't think this movie was meant to be that kind of you know that kind of movie it was essentially somebody who had reverence and was taking cues from certain directors certain styles and kind of making his own movie out of that playing by his own rules if you will and this movie last shift was and admittedly this came from wikipedia so i don't know how much it's true but the director the writer director anthony de blasi was quoted as saying that he had taken influence for this movie from Assault on Precinct 13, Nightmare on Elm Street, and a 70s documentary about the Manson family. And only one of those is obvious in this movie. The other two, I have no idea where you could make parallels to those other two movies. And I think with Malignant, you can absolutely see where James Wan is kind of channeling Argento. He's channeling um, movies like Tenebrae, um, Deep Red, those kinds of um, high points for Argento flicks. And you can see that. And you can see that while he really is only very loosely playing with Giallo, he, he's definitely showing that he's watched a, a, a few of these movies. This movie, Last Shift, I have no idea what this guy was looking at. And I'll bring it up in a second, but it, 
I, I have no idea what this movie was trying to be. So I'm kind of curious, like what you think this movie was trying to be about. Um, the Manson stuff's very, it's obvious. Uh, I don't see any Elm Street in this. Assault on Precinct 13, I can kind of get from a bare bones standpoint. You know, lone cop, empty police station, threat is, ensues. Okay, that's, if you're going def- to, if you're going to, Boiled down Assault of Precinct 13 to, you know, the fucking stock. That's what it is. But I don't feel Last Shift has, you know, like you said, the pacing's off. It's dull. The stakes aren't ever feel that high. I feel like she could just leave. Um, I don't like that, you know, there's not a lot of other characters to get invested in. The bad guys are barely in the film. Assault on Precinct 13 is so perfectly paced all the characters pop the action is incredible the ending's perfect like that movie is almost flawless whereas this movie is just completely flawed and i don't really know the audience here either uh, is this a cult movie is this a ghost movie is this a psychological thriller is this a there's like a hint of a conspiracy but we never get any answers or any anything to really latch on to uh feels like like you know this could be a like an 80s twilight zone episode yeah i guess so but that's kind of dragging down the twilight zone well I 80s mean. 80s twilights <laughs> <laughs> hey man there's some really good episodes of that. i'll stand by that um i mean it's just like so even at the beginning it's it's just like oh hey to the rookie, you're going to be in here and there's, don't go back there. There's nothing back there. You're going to see your ass on the phone and I'll see you at four o'clock in the morning. And oh, by the way, there's some cleanup guys that are going to be here at some point. And that's like the whole setup. You don't, you don't know anything until later on about who she is why she's even doing what she's doing. And even then when it's revealed what's going on and why it's going on, it still just, I was just like, Oh, okay. And that was that like, for me, like the, the most entertaining for lack of a better word. And I use that very loosely entertaining moments in this movie is when the homeless guy, walks in and pisses on the floor and then just like goes limp on the floor and she has to drag him. And then the gratuitous sex worker exposition scene. Yeah. Like that's the only reason she's in there is to basically say what's going on. And even then, like, but why? Well, also, why would the sex worker know more about this than the cop whose father was involved? Like, how it is, is well, this like a legend that like they all know about? Well, the only thing for her, for, um, for Officer Lauren's perspective is she didn't know exactly what happened to her dad. So I'll give her that. Oh, yeah. I'll give her that. But it's literally like she's going out to check on what's going on. And there's just a hooker just standing there. Like she materialized out of thin air. And she, she literally just gives exposition. That's the only purpose for her to be there. 
And I think some of that could have, could have come out from a different person because that person literally serves no other purpose than just it. And I don't like to nitpick on movies, especially when it's something that was an indie production, something that was small and whatever. But this movie, this movie was screened at Fright Fest on 20 in 2014 and like people really enjoyed it and i just i, I don't I, I i tried to do a little bit of digging and understand like who was behind this why they made it whatever and none of it none of it gave me any kind of perspective or context except for going what the fuck <laughs> and that comes in the form of finding out about the director anthony de blasi and how he came to LA and managed to become a protege of Clive Barker. That's crazy to me. Just, just right there. Just that sentence right there. Protege to Clive Barker. You work as a producer, which is not a menial job on midnight meat train and book of blood. Those are parts of Clive Barker's like, output of great horror fiction and he's the producer for these movies that's that's impressive and then his feature debut was dread which is another clive barker short story that he adapted so clearly clive barker saw something in this guy and and allowed him to work with his material and saw something there if and, and admittedly, I haven't seen anything else by this guy. He did, I think he did like some kind of documentary or something about like people who run extreme haunts or something like that. Um, and that was in 2018, but I haven't seen it. And this being like his only writing, directing feature that I, that I know of right now, I don't. I don't know what he was doing left to his own devices, like where he was getting his inspiration from. If it was just too much, if that makes sense, because I think if you're trying to mash a genre, mash, you know, two genres at least together, that's a hard balancing act in and of itself. And then you throw in an, another element to it. Unless it's, unless it's related to one of the others, I think you're always going to have a problem with trying to balance it. And that I think is one of the drawbacks for this. Yeah, you're not wrong. I don't know if it's too much. To me, it feels like it's not enough. Like, I feel like we're getting a, a bare bones story here with like very as few characters as possible. Uh, and I, f- there, I feel like there's a lot of potential in here for something that could have been really cool. You know, ghosts of 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 suicidal cult members haunt the police station that sounds awesome on paper so i think there is i think maybe in the he's just not as well versed or as experienced to do something like to to kind of capture the vision i think he wanted because i mean he hasn't worked with clive barker in a while so maybe clive barker was like maybe i you know thought too much of this guy I don't know. I just, this feels like just wasted opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's definitely potential in, in, in what he's trying to do, but I think if you're trying to, for the frame of it, if you're trying to incorporate the, 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 the setting and feeling of assault on precinct 13, I think, and, and it was almost kind of like a throwaway 
where they said that there were still some cult members around and you only ever saw one. I think if you're trying to, if you're trying to use that, then why don't you have the cult members surrounding that empty police station in order to do something to resurrect their, their leader. That I think would have been a little bit more of a threat because then you have a one cop against a bunch of nut jobs breaking in at any and every place. And their goal is to bring back who this guy, which I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I looked at it, I was like, Oh, payment. Oh, okay. That's this guy's name. All right. And then I was waiting for it. I was like, where is this evil, like devil face that I saw? I was like, you better not be bullshitting me because you promised it in a picture and you better not fucking bullshit me. And okay. They delivered. It was there. (laughs) But again, it never felt threatening. And I think, I think if you're, if that is who the villain is in this movie and he even made the, made the, the threat to that girl's father that I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill everything that you love. Then you need to, then you need to like do that. And a lot of this was just shit moving around in the background, weird sounds, pretty cliche, like nursery rhyme, sing songy shit and nothing just, nothing was real enough i will admit the only part that i was like kind of intense was when the girl she had been talking to on the phone finally materialized and was kind of stalking on her but even that just like just stopped and then i it's just very frustrating because if you're gonna go for that kind of thing then do that it was just like it it felt like it was i'm gonna do something in the background creep you out a little bit, mess around with my camera angles. And then when you, when she goes into a dark room, you're going to think something's going to pop out, but nothing's going to happen. And it just, it was just wash, rinse, repeat the entire time. It was just very, it was structured in that way, but it wasn't done. At, At no point did I feel like he was trying to go against your expectations until the end. And even then I was just like, Oh, like it just, it it wasn't enough for me. It just never had me captivated. And even at the end, I was like, that's it. That's it. And I just, I just wasn't impressed. Like, I felt like I felt like I wasted my time. I was like, God damn it. Like, yeah, I remember being actually very kind of bummed when we drew this from the book, because I remember sitting through this the first time, just thinking like that was that was lame. Like, I never wanted, I don't want to deal with that again. I wasted an hour and a half. And here I am having to watch the fucking thing again. But I love your idea of having like the active cultists surround the precinct and actively trying to resurrect the guy. That would have been an awesome movie. You know, maybe her, the homeless guy, the hooker, and like Price all, you know, have to defend the, the precinct from like the cultists. You got a movie there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. And I think they they had they they had certain flashes in there, like the room where they killed themselves, that kind of being where everything was coming from. Cool. Make that the spot where they're going to, 
you know, sacrifice the cop because she's, you know, the only link to all of this. So she needs to be sacrificed in order to bring him back, blah, 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 blah. Instead, you get that whole scene where she's just staring at them on a screen that just popped up out of nowhere. Why? You could even do that, like, you know, as a child, she, like, ran away and joined the cult or something. And, like, you know, they, were, they went through years of therapy to get her back to normal, and it's all still in there or something. Some kind of you know, bigger connection to it. I don't know. I just, I, I keep thinking of a better movie. Yeah, no, no. It's, <laughs> there's, there was a lot of times where I was watching this and I was going like, okay, I, I, I feel like you missed an opportunity there, pal. And it just, nothing just, nothing just felt good. And, and even when, and even when, um, she started to like you you started to see like she could talk to ghosts like where did that come from why like okay and uh even uh it, i had like a i had like a whole sixth sense moment where she's talking to the to the guy price and then like he just turns around and walks away and you see the back of his head blown out and you're like oh yeah she sees dead people okay but it wasn't even like that was a thing for her it was just like Ah, God. there's just so many dangling threads it's speaking of threads that one moment where she's eating her lunch or dinner or whatever she pulls out the longest pube i was just like oh oh why did it have to be a pube oh that was know. even worse that's just that's just where my terrible brain went I was, I was sitting there watching it and like i actually like i literally made the note as i was watching i made the note the longest pube ew the only part that I actively was like, you know, kind of made me chuckle or anything was when she calls, uh, Co- what was it, Cohen, I think his name was. Yeah. And he's just like, is the place on fire? Are you dying? And why the fuck are you calling me? Like, and she's just like, I don't know. And he's like, well, figure it out. Like, do you, I, I, I liked, I wanted more Cohen because he clearly understood what was going on here at this place. He just didn't tell her. And I don't know. I wanted more of that. I think that was a good dynamic. Uh, I would have, you know, maybe he was behind all this or some shit. Yeah, something. I mean, he he clearly would have had to have known who her, who her father was. And if this was her, bringing her there was like a way to get him and his family cleared of any kind of attack, like something, like something to like all of these characters had like little to no motivations for what they were doing. Yeah. And if, if we're meant to kind of be in the dark along with, uh, officer Lauren, so be it. But even with that idea, there's no, like people are telling her things that are happening and everything. She's not finding anything else out. Everything is just, given to her basically and i just i don't know none of it none of it was none of it just made sense and i don't know if that was part of that was intentional because of the way that this movie was very disorienting and confusing if you're meant for for that to be part of your experience then kudos to you I, 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 I honestly don't think that's the case, 
I feel like there's just there's just a lot of ideas that it was just like he's just throwing stuff on the wall and trying to see what sticks, and then just going just going for it like that. Yeah, I don't feel like there was any plan here. I think he was making it up as he went along, uh, and that's unfortunate. And I don't like that. It doesn't need to be confusing, but it is. And I don't, I don't like movies that are intentionally trying to just like fog you up or movies that are just, you know, they think that their influences are enough so that they don't have to try. And this, this felt like that kind of movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like you're, you're sitting in, in between two people who have a bunch of inside jokes and you're just looking at him going, what the fuck are you two talking about? I have no idea what any of this is. Why are you laughing? Even objectively, what you just said is stupid. Why do you think it's funny? And I kept asking myself, like, why do people think this is scary? Why did so many people on Fright Fest give this so much props? And I, and, and I legitimately like went in completely open to, to hoping that whatever I fell asleep on was just me being a little couple of beers deep and just not being able to pay attention and hoping that that was the case. And I, a couple of times I had to fight myself from just watching whatever else on my phone. I had to like actively like put it away from me so I couldn't pick it up. I was like, no, if you're going to look at anything, asshole, you're going to look at your notebook and you're going to make some notes. That's what you're going to do. I had to keep fighting the urge, just like check out. Just like, ah, fuck this movie. Yeah, to me, that's a sign of a bad movie. When I'm reaching towards my phone and I'm, I want to look at anything else, I'm like, well, I clearly, this movie clearly has not captured my attention. So what are we going to do from here? And also, I'm in the middle of watching the last season of Lucifer, which just dropped on Netflix. And I had to interrupt that to watch this movie. So that didn't help. Well, I had just driven, uh, dropped off my kids. And so I had come off of a straight up eight hour drive and I came back to watch this. And I was like, I waited to watch this. You've got to be kidding me. And there wasn't even like good of good core effects or anything like there was nothing I could latch on to that was like, oh, that was pretty cool. Just, just wasn't. Just wasn't. The only guy on this team I could complain to is Caleb because he doesn't have kids. <laughs> I always feel bad when you or Austin give me your complaints and I'm like, that's way more valid than mine. No, no hell no. No, fuck that, man. Look, everybody, everybody has their varying levels of inconvenience they have to suffer some it's with a cat or a tv show you wanted to pause and watch others we have human beings that we're raising and molding and shaping for the future whatever it's okay i'm fully aware i don't have real problems i am well aware of <laughs> no they are real to you connor don't don't be so dismissive of your life I feel like you're being super sarcastic and I agree. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not, not at all. Not at all. I admittedly, because of the subject we are talking about the movie, not our lives and comparing them that, yeah, probably is kind of coming out like that, but not at all. Not at all. If I was talking to Caleb about this, however, I would absolutely be 
sarcastic and make him feel like an idiot for complaining about anything. But that's also because I like to watch him squirm. Don't we all? Don't we all? Uh, so we talked about Anthony de Blasi, some of his other films he directed, Most Likely to Die, Her Last Will, Extremity, and Missionary. Uh, I haven't heard of any of these films. Uh, I think that this movie is probably why. And yeah, he executive produced The Midnight Meat Train, which I did see. Uh, weird movie, but it's Barker. What do you expect? Uh, Juliana Harkavy stars as Officer Jessica Lauren. Harkavy is known for her role as Dinah Drake, the second Black Canary on CW's Arrow. She was also in Dolphin Tale, Dolphin Tale 2, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, and two episodes of The Walking Dead. And I, I liked her at first on Arrow. I watched all of Arrow. And her character, like pretty much every other character on that show, goes through an arc where they're just fucking insufferable. And I don't know why that always happens on CW. Whatever. Uh, she's not bad in this. Uh, she's doing her best with what she's got. Yeah, I mean, like with having to carry an entire movie on your own and trying to... Because I think she's trying to play naive and very green as a cop, but also trying to trying to find her her uh, her assertiveness and her strength. And I I think a lot of what we see on screen is probably down to the writing and how she might not have had a lot to work with. And unless I'm unless I'm seeing behind the scenes stuff and I hear the conversations they're having, I feel like she just like you said, she did her best. Um, I was kind of hoping at some point she was going to just take this by the scruff of the neck. And instead, I feel like she got overwhelmed with everything that was going on and. I could I could see how in a moment where you're doubting yourself that hearing the voice of your dead parent kind of kicking you in the balls <laughs> could be a little deflating. Um, at the same time, everything that had happened up to that point, you could have kind of been like, well, none of this is real. So I'm going to figure out what's going on and I'm and I'm going to stop it. And she just never did. She she got consumed by everything that was happening up to the point where it literally clouded her vision and she killed people that were actual people. Yep. And that's not a great arc. It's kind of just going through the motions, really. Like, there's no conclusion to her story. It just kind of, you know, shit unfolds as it does and we just kind of roll with it. Yeah, it kind of, instead of going out with a bang in in a good way it just kind of goes with a whimper and a thud <laughs> yes and then you're just like oh really and even if and even if the the planned outcome of that was to have a downer ending cool but make it make us feel like it was earned and i don't think this was earned i felt like kind of felt like the, the path was laid out for her to get to this inevitable end and it just obstacles were moved out of the way. Just blah, 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 blah. 
blah, blah. She never really did anything. Because everything that she was trying to do, trying to get this girl's information, like, it almost felt like, so for me, coming from where I get trained on something, um, if it's like a, if it's like a new position on like a, a watch position or something like that, you're basically given a document that has all the things you're supposed to know. You're basically getting like one-on-one -on -one training for each scenario that you're supposed to understand. Then on top of that, you have to do the thing under somebody who is qualified and they'll guide you through it. And then at that point, you still have references in front of you to where if you ever forget in that situation, you can literally reference something. I don't feel like, and how many times did she look at the police procedure handbook and then do nothing the way procedure or even look at it and go like, wait, hold on. You know, like she had these clearly disinterested other cops at the news station just going like, oh, God, why are you calling? Did you like even get her like all these basic things? And I feel like if you were a if you were a rookie, your first night on the job, you would be over eager to try and do everything right. Everything the, by the letter of the law, like the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. And it it just felt like she was always, always going uphill. Like she never had a chance to get anywhere. Like she was already behind the eight ball. I don't know. I don't. I feel like I'm repeating myself now. But. Yeah, you're right. It's a. Uh, it's like she's fresh out of the academy. Like there's no, or she's still in the academy. Like she's still learning. There's no. I don't believe that she would be put in charge of anything if she can't figure out the basic shit at this point uh yeah and that again that just goes back to the writing um we got joshua michael or mikhail uh however you say it he plays the spirit of cultist john michael payman for like five minutes if that uh he's had a surprisingly impressive career appearing in films such as game night greenland the dirt Ant-Man and the Wasp, I, Tanya, Terminator Genesis, and most recently, Respect. He also played Jared on The Walking Dead. If y'all don't remember Jared, he was one of those savior assholes with, like, long hair. He looked like his name should be fucking Otis or something. Uh, and he, I don't really have an opinion on him in this because he's barely in it. Yeah. And again, if this is the person that is supposed to be the villain... It should be there for more than five seconds. Yeah. Literally relegated to bit bits of video that just don't do much. Like the one of the cult girls who breaks into the police station gets more screen time than this guy. Yeah. I it just it just totally blows my mind. And I think if you were even if you were trying to, to to ramp up the supernatural aspect of it, get your mileage out of that guy for real. Like literally on the poster, it says all hail the King of hell. Like, come on, bring that shit on, please. You are billing this. You are building this up. You better deliver. And I, and the, I used those words specifically in my review where, you know, talking about the influences he cited, like, if you're going to do that, fucking deliver on it. If not, then you're just pulling the old bait and switch. Like, 
anybody and everybody did during the VHS boom. All hail the king of hell. There, that is a tagline with some massive balls. And if you can't deliver, God, I didn't know that was the tagline of the film. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the sack on this guy. All hail the king of hell. That's like hereditary could own that, that tagline. But yeah, and they're using the referencing the same character, creature, whatever you want to, you know, like, and that was way more menacing. And it was literally just like a living doll that was made by the end at Hereditary. And this shit is like, he's supposed to be this all evil thing. Come on. I would rather see a weird, horny, hippie dude who makes a deal with the devil and becomes something more. Do that. Show me that shit. Wasn't that bad times at the El Royale? Remember that chestnut? Oh my god, that thing was marketed so hard and then just crumbled away. Oh, there's so many movies out there that are talked about like one time. <laughs> I mean, that's that's more than for for every movie that's talked about once. Think about that. For every movie that's talked about once, how many movies are never talked about and are either like perpetually in development hell or never get past the first meeting and how that stuff is there's so much stopping and starting and that's why i feel bad where i'm like tearing a movie down or picking it apart and being overly critical but for me the experience there was nothing enjoyable about it and i would i would love nothing more than to have somebody tell me what they enjoyed about it and why they enjoyed it and i know you talked about it before we started recording where Caleb says he really likes it. I want to know what he saw in this movie and what got him, what got him going. Yeah, me too. Cause I clearly can't find it. <laughs> and it just, it's just like two or three different movies all smushed together. And then this turd was shit out of it. Gee, what do you really think? <laughs> uh, well, I hate, but that also, you know, when a film, you talk about all the films that never come about, all the ideas that are shot down and just never mentioned again. That's why I hate when a film like this is fully made and still sucks because it could have been something great. Some other idea could have had this budget and actually been something. And it's just, I hate wasted potential more than anything when it comes to film. Just, what could have been, I, is, I never stopped thinking about it. Always. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I think about things like that coming from a place of being somebody who always has ideas. and I, I, I don't always have the time to sit and devote to fleshing a lot of them out. So a lot of them are just fleeting ideas. And if I happen to write it down, cool, I might come back to it later. Or yeah. if I have managed to get something into some kind of a readable form, I, I I still pour over it. I still keep picking at it and trying to find what is working, what isn't working. And then I'm hoping that some of my friends will be stupid enough to read it and be honest and just tell me what they don't like. And any of that helps because I think until you get, cause anything I, anytime I've heard about a film going through the development process, and I will 
I'll mention Jacob's wife because when Barbara Crampton saw that script, she, she liked it. She also knew it wasn't, it wasn't where it needed to be. And she spent her time making sure that that script became the strongest it could be. And to the point where she, she wanted to act in it because she only wanted to produce it. She only wanted to work on that on one side of the camera. She didn't want to pull double duty. And I've, I've heard it said many times that if you want to make a house analogy, the script is the blueprint. And if your blueprint sucks, your movie's going to suck. And I think that's where this suffers is that whatever they were trying to write wasn't fully thought out. I'm probably on the, on the extreme end of it where I go way out. Like I will do outlines. I will just pull out ideas and I will see like what is really working with this. And if it isn't sweet, I'm going to try something else. And I, I think I had like a collection of like just different little scenes of things. And I was like, let's see if this can all work together, smash it all together. And I'm like, okay, I like it, but something's not right. And then you just start tearing it apart and making something better than what you had before. And I don't think that this idea had that chance. And I think if it would have had somebody to objectively look at it and be like, this isn't really working. Like, what are you trying to do here? I don't think enough questions were asked. Oh, this has first draft written all over it. I bet that people were like, you know, I don't, I have a feeling this guy maybe didn't want to take criticism. You know, that's a big, that can fuck up so many stories. If you're not willing to hear that something you wrote might not be that good. I, I don't think you have much of a future <laughs> as a, as a writer. Yeah, no, you, that was one of the things when I, so when I was very, very young in, in my writing, I, I was terrified to share stuff with people very terrified and i think one of the first times i did somebody like read something then looked at me and was like are you okay and i was like what like what are you talking about like it's just really dark material like are you all right i'm like what this has nothing to do and then i started thinking and then you start thinking about wait why does it and then you start questioning yourself and it's like well hold on going through workshops and like having somebody like actually look at you and be like, look, I'm not saying this about you. I'm saying this about the words that you wrote down and you start to build up that, that thick skin to where you can objectively sit back and look at, and then you start to understand your own process. I don't know about you. Um, when I first have an idea, I try to just latch onto it and just write it for as long as I can. And I do what most people call like a vomit draft or I just, in my words, I barf everything out. I just go and go and go and go and go until I can't go anymore. And then either the next day, a week, a month, what have you, then I'll look at it again and I'm like, okay, what the hell was that? Because sometimes for me, a lot of my writing just comes, comes out. I'm not consciously thinking about it. And when you, when you can look at your own stuff objectively and be critical, it's very helpful. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. I not once have I ever thought like, this is amazing. Everyone's going to love this. I am, you know, fucking Hemingway reincarnated. Not once. If anything, I'll, I'll look at it and think, like, does this work? 
And if I think it works, I'll show it to somebody else. And if they think it works, I'll be like, great. And then I'll keep going. I, I tend to come up with the idea first, let it gestate. I'll write it down, kind of develop like some characters, come up with like a little bit of a, a plot line with bullet, bullet points. And then if I, if I can get that far, then I know then I can put pen to paper and actually make a story out of this. And I've gotten 40, 50 pages into novels and thought this isn't working and just shelved it. It's a terrible feeling, but if you can, if you can tell that this is going nowhere, you got to kill it or else you're wasting your time. Right. But even, even with something like that, like the, um, the thing that I was working on with Caleb when we were on a deployment, it was a collection of just a bunch of random things. And I tried to figure out a way to make it into one kind of narrative and it's still very raw, but I, I, I figured out a way to, to have it into a, some kind of workable form. And it was, it was nice because some of that stuff I had written like 10 years ago or three years ago, and I just never thought about it again. And then you look at it and you're like, oh shit, there is something in there. And yeah. then looking at it, another light bulb goes off in your head and you're like, okay, wait, I can use this to talk about this and then go here. And then it's like all this shit just starts firing out of your head and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is fantastic. But something that you thought was a dead end at one point, you could pull it back five years later and you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Fuck yeah, boom. So like for me, there's no such thing as a wasted idea. It's just something, something's not clicking right now. And, and to have that, to have that, um, to have that control to be like, okay, this isn't working. I've got to get away from it. To have that ability is, is so important because you can't, and I had to learn this very early on and, and, and I'm glad I did. You can't get so personally, emotionally invested in something, even if it's coming from a personal place, like it's, it's just, you have to kind of treat it as its own thing and you have to, you have to be able to, like you said, kill it, but know that it's not dead yet. You know, it's just something that probably isn't working right now. And to, to just unplug it and go stick it somewhere else and then move on. Cause I, I know that frustration. And especially when you're just constantly beating yourself over the head and you're like, no, this is going to work. This is going to work. This is going to work. I literally have, I've had to put stuff away and just forget about it and have other ideas come through in order to get, you know, the cobwebs out. I, I learned this the hard way throughout high school. I wrote a fantasy sci-fi superhero epic series that was six books long and admittedly was completely nonsensical and really hard to follow and didn't make a lot of sense. I was more excited about the idea of having a book than writing a book. And in, um, in college, I kept writing. I wrote a, started writing a sequel series, and I got four books into that. And then I had a moment of clarity where I'm like, no one's going to want to read this. Like, this, this barely makes sense to me now. Like, who, am I, who is this for? What, like, what are you going to get out of this? And so I shelved it. And ever since then, I've tried very hard with my writing and with the podcast to completely take arrogance out of the equation. Because you got to do that. You got to realize that you're not the first guy to do this. You're not 
breaking, you know, new ground. You're just adding to the, to the discussion. And if you can, you know, eventually I do plan on going back to that fantasy series and doing it right. And, you know, fleshing it out properly. And I, I'm still developing ideas for that. Nothing's ever truly dead. Just put on ice, but you do, you do have to come to, to a realization at one point where you're like, is this the kind of writer I want to be? And it's tough to, you know, it's tough to do that, but everyone has to do it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, uh, I think, I think having, having that awareness is something that you have to develop and it helps a lot. For me, it helped a lot having a lot of, uh, workshop type classes and it was for everything from fiction to poetry to um, even, you know, like reading essays and stuff like that. It was all in service of just making you a better writer. And then even other people noticing things that you're doing that you're not even aware that you're doing. I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed, like there was an older guy in one of my workshop classes. He was always like, this kind of reminds me of this. And I'd be like, what? Like, I've never even read anything like that. And he's like, well, I have, I've read a lot of it actually. And, and this is kind of interesting to me because you're kind of following along. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. And so it kind of opens up new doors for you, new avenues, new ways of looking at things. The, um, the first thing I wrote after the fantasy epic was my first vampire Western uh, consequence. And I, I wrote that primarily to prove I could write something that wasn't in this world I'd spent, you know, so long in, in, and, um, I got into a contest, uh, and I made it into the the final 50 and I had the guy who was in charge of the contest, like read the book and called me and said, like, he loved it. He compared it to John Carpenter's work. And I had like the biggest, smile i was like so flattered and honored that anybody would ever think my shit is anywhere near john carpenter and i didn't win the contest but still like i've I've always held on to that like someone someone liked my work and that's just a good feeling but it also showed you know i can do influences without looking like i'm ripping anybody off like it can it can be done i can do this and uh i never looked back i wrote two more i'm writing a fourth right now I just wish I had the patience for that. It's not easy. No, I bet. I bet. And I'm sure, I'm sure if I took a more piecemeal approach, because I can have, I have like bigger ideas and I think being able to like break it out. And if I mapped it out, I'm sure it could help me out. Cause I, I have to like have some kind of, some kind of frame to follow. That's why outlines are very helpful to me. Yeah. So. Yeah. This new one I'm working on, I tried going in blind without an outline and I got lost so quickly. I need an outline. I got to know at least vaguely where I'm going to go or else I just, it goes all over the place. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And with the podcast and grad school, I have very little fucking time to write anymore. <laughs> yeah. I get it. <sighs> well, whatever. That was fun. I don't usually get to talk about writing with somebody who actually like writes. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, well, I think it was, I, th- I think it was something I kept, I kept thinking to myself about while I was watching last shift. It's just like, I always 
and, and it's, and it's hard for me to turn that part of me off when I am watching a movie, especially if I'm watching the movie with somebody else. Oftentimes it's somebody that's never taken film classes, never taken writing classes, anything like that. Um, I, I, I used to make the comment a lot when something was really bad. It's like, man, I can feel the writing in this. And I, I, I said that one time and somebody was like, what do you mean? Like, like I can feel how bad this is right now. Like you can hear the words coming out of this person's mouth and you're just like, Oh fuck. I don't think they ever said this out loud to themselves. Cause that's something that was a, a, another thing I learned. It was like, yeah, sure. It can sound really great in your head, but then you say it out loud and you're like, Ooh, Oh, that's fucking terrible. What is wrong with me? But it's these little tools that you need. You need to hear somebody reading your stuff out loud. Cause again, it can sound great rattling around in your brain, but the moment it gets life breathed into it, then you really know what it is. And I, I, I felt like this was a worthwhile tangent to go on because I think that was definitely something that the, the biggest, the biggest problem this movie had was the script. I really absolutely believe that. I think, I think there are, like you said, there are some good ideas here. There are some good moments here. There's just not enough of them strung together in a coherent way to have something that created a much more pleasurable viewing experience. Yeah, you're right. And I do think it is that nobody told this guy his first draft wasn't great. And you need that guy. You need someone to tell you that you're not, you know, the best writer on earth. I remember I had... um. I was, I was going over one of my vampire books with a friend, some stuff I'd written. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have realized that I had named two of my characters fucking Bert and Ernie. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. It was a complete accident. And he was like, you realize you got Bert and Ernie in here? And I'm like, what? <laughs> that, that got changed. But like, you need that. You need that, you know, someone who's not going to just kiss your ass. You can't, you can't surround yourself with ass kissers or else you're never going to learn. You're never going to be better. You're never going to learn your strengths, your mistakes. Sure. Or, you know, you could be Dan O'Bannon and write them into Return of the Living Dead and nobody thinks twice until you're like revisiting and you're like, holy shit. There was a Bert and Ernie in that movie. And you're just like, damn it. Well, he Didn't made it work. catch it. He made exactly, it work. Exactly. He made it work because the way he wrote it, it was it was already so ridiculous. Now, admittedly, you probably couldn't have those characters in something that was a little more of a serious tone and not be taken out of it for yeah. sure. You know, you can't have some gruff fucking cowboy type going, hey, Ernie, I need me some whiskey. And then you're like, yeah, Bert, no problem. And you're like, ah, oh, fuck. I'm taken right out of it. Just fucking taken right out of it. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, this, yeah. This this was this was great. I'm glad we talked about this. <laughs> um, I got two more people I want to talk about in the cast, and then we'll. Well, I guess we'll just keep going. Um, Hank Stone, who plays Sergeant Cohen, um, he's appeared in Cold Mountain, The Patriot. The Birth of a Nation, and The Punisher, the one with Thomas Jane and John Travolta, which I always forget about that movie. That's a fun watch. I actually haven't seen either of those Punisher movies. They're both, I like both of them. 
War Warzone especially is fucking ridiculously over the top. It's fun. Well, it should be. It's a fucking Punisher movie. Like, yeah. Did you ever have you ever seen the one with Dolph Lundgren? Oh no, I haven't. Oh boy, that one is great. It's pure cheese. Like it's Dolph Lundgren, hair dyed black, supposed to be playing an American, and he's still got this like this this thick accent to his voice, and you're just like, damn it. <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. You're Frank Castle. Sure. Let's go. <laughs> it is it's great. It's great. It wasn't the Punisher movie we we wanted. It's the Punisher movie we got. It's kind of what it's always been, isn't it? Pretty much. I I will say I was more or less pleased overall with uh, John Bernthal's Punisher. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of points, and I'm just like, I don't want you to go that route, but okay, it's grounded and real, I guess. So, but when Frank Castle's going out to fuck shit up, it was nice. Yeah, for sure. In the 04, I think he plays uh, this guy. I think he plays uh, John Travolta's bad guy, Howard Saint, his like right hand man who's gay. I think that's who he's playing. I don't know. It's been a minute, but that movie is underappreciated. I mean, Roy Scheider's in it. Uh, fucking John Panette is in it. It's it's such an odd ball film. And Thomas Jane's a pretty decent Frank Castle, but uh, I don't know. It just didn't do it for people. Uh, Matt Doman plays Officer Price. He's Bizarro Matt Damon from another dimension. He, he was in one episode of The Gifted, one episode of Bloodline, one episode of Burn Notice, and several films I have never heard of. So, yeah, Matt Doman. I just keep picturing Team America World Police. Matt Doman! <laughs> oh, so... Last Shift has an IMDb score of 5.8, sounds about right, and a Rotten Tomato score of 100%. Don't get excited, that's from nine reviews. I was about to say that. I was about to say, like, you do know that it was only nine people that reviewed it, and I'm pretty sure none of them have been since the movie was put out. Um, yeah, these were paid for. The audience score is 51%. That sounds about right. 100%. Like, the first time I saw that, I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? And I had to look into it like, yeah, of course. It's him and all his friends saying, this movie was amazing. <laughs> uh, it was released directly to VOD in 2015, so there's no box office gross. And it's bounced around from Netflix to Tubi to Prime Video, where it is now. Uh, yeah, this is one of those ones that's going to be in the background of every streaming service you have when you search horror movies. You know, you go on page 15, this will be there right next to, like, you know, Night of the Living Fred or some shit. <laughs> so, we've kind of already been talking about the movie. I feel like there's not a lot more to discuss. But uh, any other, like, uh, high points, low points you want to bring up? No, because, like, really, like... Okay, so the ending. When the actual, I guess, quote-unquote, assault on Precinct 13 part happens, and there's these weird baghead cult members running around. It literally looks like it's the same person the entire time that's running through each spot. Like, anytime she's moving the flashlight around, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, like, counting, like, okay, there's the guy, and there's the guy, and there's the guy. It, like, it was just, like, so predictable. 
and even because I and, and and this is how much I stopped paying attention. I don't remember any other point after I think the second time she called the cleaner guys and the guy was like, look, lady, I'm knee deep in shit. I told you I'd call you when I'm going to be on my way. And I think that was the last time I heard from him. And then all of a sudden they just showed up magically at the end of the, the end of the shift. Like what? And all right. What was the homeless man even real? I don't know. Like that's like, that's, that's the thing. Like I get it. If you're trying to make this out to be like, it's all in her head or the, the ghosts of the cult members are the ones that have been doing everything since the, 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 the day they were murdered, murdered, they were killed there by the cops, you know, but even that, like that just felt like so slapped together and there was no real, no real reason for any of it. And if, if the hobo wasn't real, why was he so scared of being in that one room? And then why did he get hanged in there? Like, there's just so many things I just kept like, it just all has so many contradictions. Yeah. It's- and then at the end, she gets shot by the sergeant guy. And, and then it's like, Oh, it was all in her head. The whole, like that, that is just as bad as saying it was all a dream. That's like right up there. She's like, come on. Come on. You mean to tell me the only real people she talked to the entire time was a hooker, her boss, and some people on the phone? That's it? I, I get, and her mom, I guess. Yeah. 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 This, this movie is a great lesson in killing your darlings. I'm a firm believer in that. Not every idea you have is a great one. You can't just shove every idea you have into one narrative or it's going to get clogged up. And that's what happened here. Yeah, that's exactly what this feels like. And I think, and again, not saying that you can't, you can't wear your references on your sleeve. If you're going to do it, you need to like be aware of that. And you need to understand what that is going to do to whoever is reading whatever you write or who's ever watching the movie that you make out of it. You've got to be aware of that and to go into it and think either nobody's going to notice or people are just going to lap it up and think you're the greatest thing. That's, that's to your detriment. And this definitely is a, is a, is a case of that. Yeah. Like for example, in my first book, I've got a character uh, who lives in the town. Her name is Mrs. Dandridge. Just a, my little cute nod to Fright Night. But if I had my bad guy, his name was like D.R. Acula, then I'm, no one's going to take that seriously. Everyone's going to be like, what the fuck, man? So you got you to know when to pick your moments. For sure. As much as I do want to make a character named D.R. Acula just for the fuck of it. That's a great name. I always, I always liked uh, Doctor Acula. Yeah, I feel like that's too. You know, if he's a town doctor, he could be Doctor Dr. Acula. 
Oh boy. Um, I've got one filmgasm fact. There's three bits of trivia on this movie and none of them are that interesting, but it would feel wrong to not have that on this after 150 plus episodes. So number one, the name Payman is taken from the demon name Payman. According to the lesser key of Solomon, Payman is one of the kings of hell, more obedient to Lucifer than other kings and has 200 legions of demons under his rule. Any horror fans out there will know Payman as the demon bad guy from Hereditary. Uh, yeah, there it is, Payman. Um, I give this film a six, and honestly, that's that's being generous. It's not unwatchable, but I do think it's pretty boring and not all that scary. But there is there is potential. Yeah, I think I gave gave it a six as well, and again, um. I would be, I would be very, uh, I'd be very shitty if I would go any lower, because I'm sure plenty of people that are listening to this would go, "Well, you gave the Toxic Avenger a ten. How could you do that? That movie's terrible." Blah blah blah. Well, you know what? It's an objective scoring system here, people. Yeah. I absolutely think the Toxic Avenger is a ten. This movie, and I. And I do, like you, feel being a little more gracious. But like like you said, it's not completely unwatchable. It's for me it's just very frustrating. Yeah. Because I'm not I'm not participating in the way where I'm sucked into what I'm watching. I'm looking at this thing going, How the fuck did this get made? And if I would have brought whatever idea I've got that I think is cool to the table, that would have got shot down. But this guy's thing gets made. Proof that life is not fair. Oh, yeah. I gave The Toxic Avenger a seven, and I would watch that a hundred times before I'd ever watch Last Shiv again. Because The Toxic Avenger, at least, is fucking fun. Yeah. It knows it, what it is. It, exactly. It is not trying to be anything else. <laughs> um, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, next week, the cycle continues with Austin's pick. Our resident Oscar Sunday host is taking us out of horror for a week and putting us firmly in the realm of crime drama with a film that we once did on this show as a bonus episode back in 2019. In my ongoing mission to correct the bonuses and do them right as full-blown episodes, this seems like a great place to start. Fast-talking New York jeweler and gambling addict Howard Ratner is on the hunt for the big win, but only ends up making things worse for himself and the people he cares about by digging himself deeper and deeper into the hole. Can Howard find the big win, pay off his debts, and make things right? Or will his addiction to the thrill of the game get him killed? Find out next week as we dig into the criminally overlooked 2019 crime thriller, Uncut Gems, starring Adam Sandler as you've never seen him before. I can't wait to revisit this one. It's such a tense movie, and uh, I don't think you've seen it yet, have you? Nope, and not for any uh, spiteful reasons. It's just one of those things that like it came and I never heard about it. And I was like, Oh, I need to watch that. I grew up. Uh, so fun fact about me back in my high school days. Um, <clears throat> I used to uh, indulge in uh, recreational substances and uh, on the bus one day I had uh, I'm trying to think, I think it was, they're all going to laugh at you. Uh, the comedy CD when you know, comedians used to make comedy CDs. Um, <laughs> and I was singing 
and I don't know if you're familiar with the song, but I was singing the song at a medium pace in my headphones. So I had them on my head and I'm sitting in the back of the bus and I'm singing the song. And the song is like progressively like just foul and perverted and disgusting. And at the same time, it's like Adam Sandler's got a great singing voice. It's like this sweet love ballad, but he's singing about getting a shampoo bottle stuck up his ass and shit. And I'm singing this and like, I get to like the, towards the end of the song and like the, I didn't know it at the time. The whole bus is looking back at me and they're laughing and people are just like, Oh my God, what's going on now? <laughs> the bus driver, this is the best part of the whole story. The bus driver was this lady who had a lazy eye and you didn't know if she was looking up at you because, you know, they used to have these big, wide rearview mirrors. And the way her lazy eye worked, she looked like literally she was looking in the, in the rearview mirror and at the road at the same time. So, like, you had no idea if she was talking to you, looking at you, or what. All I know was she was definitely talking to me at that point. Because I looked up, and she's, like, yelling at me. I can't hear anything. Like, all I see is everybody laughing at me. I'm like, oh, shit, I was being really loud. And, yeah, she was totally, like, hearing me sing all this offensive stuff. But I didn't get in trouble. So, you know, it was it was a simpler time back then. You could sing about jerking off and, you know, shampoo bottles getting shoved up your ass and not get in trouble for it. Now you fucking get hauled off to jail and convicted of sex crimes and, you know, damaging children's fragile brains but that's great i think you're gonna really like uncut gems because that that side of sandler's not gone in this movie it's just buried under a lot of other shit but you can definitely tell this is the same guy who does wacky shit like that and it's such a a weird there's so many like weirdly sexual moments that just come out of nowhere it's really funny at times the ending is like, what the fuck? Out of nowhere. Such a fun movie. I'm so excited to revisit it. And I have a fun theater story from, I told it on the bonus when I went to see this. I remember it clear as day because I was thinking like, how is this happening right now? So I'll try, I'll try to remember to tell that next week as well. Oh, I look forward to it. <laughs> also, don't miss the 1995 Nick Cage drama Leaving Las Vegas on Oscar Sunday. And the Clint Eastwood drama Cry Macho, among others, on Monday's sneak preview. Until then, don't join a cult. But if you do, don't get killed in the police station. Keep watching movies. Mm-hmm.